Welcome, folks, to the Career Success Academy podcast. I'm Denise, the founder and CEO of the Career Success Academy. And I'm Ty, your host. We're here to help you unlock your full potential and thrive in your career. Together, we'll explore the strategies, insights, and stories that will guide you towards the success you've always dreamed of. I've spent years dedicated to empowering individuals like you to excel in the workplace. Through this podcast, we'll be your coaches, mentors, and trusted advisors. So whether you're just starting your journey or looking to elevate your career to the next level, the Career Success Academy podcast is your go-to resource for all things professional growth. Expect interviews with industry experts, career tips and tricks, and a healthy dose of inspiration to keep you motivated on your path to success. So get ready to turn your dreams into reality right here with us. In today's episode, we are excited to welcome Dr. Patrick Graham. He is a well-respected and sought-after leader and collaborator, often championing affordable housing and policy agendas. He has previously served as the executive director for the Dr. Martin Luther King Center, as well as becoming the CEO of the Urban League affiliate of the Carolinas. He currently serves as CEO of the Concord Family Enrichment Association. We know that he has both the experience and the credibility to help us sharpen our skills today. We're thrilled because in our segment today, we'll get a chance to meet and discover more about the man behind the vision for change. Let's meet Dr. Patrick Graham. So thank you for being here with me. It's my pleasure to welcome you. And if you don't mind, go ahead and introduce yourself and briefly walk us through your professional career. Well, first of all, just thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Um, so if you were to think about my career, I, I liken myself to be a Jedi practitioner, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion practitioner uh, before it was fashionable. Mm -hmm. um, my career uh, actually has two trajectories, one professionally in the public and social sector, the other in education um, as a professor. Mm -hmm. um, on the public and social sector side, um, I started my career as a young executive director, I think I was 26 years old, mm -hmm. for the Martin Luther King Center in New York, out in Long Island, mm -hmm. uh, focused in youth services and um, disconnected youth advancement. Mm -hmm. um, and then found myself actually uh, here in Charlotte in 2001, mm -hmm. uh, became director of emergency financial assistance and self-sufficiency for crisis assistance ministry. and the county's uh, eviction prevention program. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's my first time really getting involved in housing. Mm -hmm. uh, became also the president of the Urban League where I really focused a lot more on workforce development, uh, created a bank that ended up lending about $6.7 million to small black businesses. Mm -hmm. um, workforce board uh, became president there for a couple of years. And then uh, most recently, senior policy advisor for the city of Richmond and focus a lot there in wealth development. Mm -hmm. um, so what were ways to sort of alleviate poverty, but also create wealth in communities that were untapped. Mm -hmm. And so now here I am 
as the CEO of the Concord Family Enrichment Association. And my focus is really on building brick and mortar, actual affordable housing, not just an advocate, mm -hmm. but actually building it, but also connecting people to other resources. So um, the city of Concord, as well as some of the community decided they wanted to use my workforce and economic development background um, with this housing initiative to really make some cross-sector collaboration between them. So that's where I am today. That's awesome. Um, that's very, very impressive. Um, the way that you serve so publicly um, just lets me know you have a heart for people. You have a heart for change. Um, you've devoted so much of your career to being a service to community. And that is definitely powerful, impactful. Um, that's the stuff legacies are built on. So tell, tell me this, from your perspective, how do you define success? I define success as actually having impact on issues, people, or even policies that you will not always see come to fruition mm -hmm. as you begin to work on them. And this is a lot of people don't necessarily agree with that because they want quick return. Mm -hmm. I think that I've always thought about the long game. Mm -hmm. uh, the long game is important because at the end of the day, we're talking about creating systems impact. You want to transform things, um, not just sort of live in them, but live outside of them. And so um, I've seen that come to fruition in some cases, um, but it takes a while. And I think that's what we need from leaders now, much more of an investment of their time and energy to create a longer term vision while still accomplishing some goals in between. That's awesome. That's a great definition because you're right. Sometimes we do get stuck on those immediate results, those immediate returns. It likens me to be able to say you're a sower of seeds, right? And you are not impatient uh, in the sense that you can't um, rush the harvest. You want the harvest to mature in its own time. And that may mean it matures outside of the realm of you being there. And you indicated that you are okay with that, which is a very powerful statement. At what point in your career did you feel successful? And what specifically made you feel that way? You know, you, in, in time, you get accolades. People tap, you know, pat you on the back occasionally. Um, but I think that I really reached success, some form of success, when I was sitting in a coffee shop and I had started the initiative back in the early 2000s to change the way that we describe communities who were struggling financially and communities of color. And that was um, to call them instead of at risk, that you would refer to them as at opportunity. Mm. And we actually got that patented and, you know, copyrighted. Mm -hmm. And so I was proud to actually be someone who came up with that notion mm -hmm. um, and that it was adopted um, even before the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And so when I really knew that it worked mm -hmm. is that when someone was talking to me in a coffee shop and they referred to certain communities as at risk, and immediately looked at me and apologized mm. because they knew not only what I stood for, 
But now this notion of just calling communities at risk was now passe. Mm -hmm. We were going to think about them as opportunities, not just for themselves, but for us. Oh. And I think that that's probably, though it's symbolic, it's much different from, mm -hmm. you know, getting hundreds of people into jobs. It was different from the loans to small minority businesses. Mm -hmm. It was different from any of those because those are all tangible forms of success. Mm -hmm. But this one was more about a mental model to me mm -hmm. that I actually really was proud of because when you change systems, you first have to change mentality. Mm -hmm. Resources, collaboration, other things follow once mentalities change. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with it, right? It's the mindset. The Bible tells us as a man think, if so, is he, right? And so that definition and really reframing it to really speak to the potential rather than the difficulty, it allows us to walk in a different mindset to your point and be able to approach it from a space of solution rather than a rehearsal of problem. And so I love how um, that moment was so impactful to you because um, to your point, it wasn't the tangible accomplishment. It was the reality that I am making a difference in how people are thinking and they recognize what I represent, right? For him to apologize, he recognized what you represent. What stimulated this consciousness with you? Is it your upbringing? Was there someone in your family? Like what stimulated? Was it your own experiences? What gave you this heart for the way you serve? I think it's a combination of things. I got, first of all, I had a mother who um, was an advocate in her own right. Mm -hmm. uh, she advocated actually for housing, even sometimes would go undercover to realty companies to see if they would try to uh, redline her thought into terms of where she lived. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she did that. Um, she also did a lot of work in community centers. So there was one that's that, that influence. Mm -hmm. um, two, I got to watch as a young man in Long Island, Long Beach, I was in a segregated community that was segregated old school by race. And so I had middle-class African-Americans, African-Americans who were maybe struggling financially, blue collar, green collar, uh, white collar, workers all in my, at my fingertips, in my eyesight. I got to see these different individuals interact with each other. I got to see them go to work. I got to see them participate in community. And so when I looked at it, and it's oftentimes when people say you are living in poorer conditions or isolated or segregated areas, you're often cast as by what you don't have. Right. What I saw was a richness in these communities. Uh, and by the way, in my town of Long Beach, 70% of them were first uh, generation migrants mm -hmm. or their children were born of migrants mm -hmm. from the South. So in a way too, there was a lot of history that was instilled in me. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother taught me about my roots in Alabama. Mm -hmm. um, my family fought against the Klan. Mm -hmm. My family found a way to get out of sharecropping and now had 300 plus acres of land that they farmed. Mm -hmm. um, so it sort of gave me a sense of um, possibilities mm -hmm. um, through circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so um, coming here to Charlotte, 
when I would hear terms like at risk, when I would hear even some of my own people talk about populations in negative ways, mm -hmm. um, I knew that that was something that I had to change because I couldn't live in that type of reality with them. Gotcha. That's beautiful. The What was instilled in you and what you embraced set you on a course to be a game changer. And I think we all can appreciate how you serve and appreciate your willingness to see the power of your experience and how to make it more powerful. And so I knew there had to be a really good story there because your resolve is deep. And um, I, I'm just elated to hear about how you saw the richness in your community. And it wasn't necessarily about the dollar. It was about the experience. It was about the culture. It was about the investment, the community. And you allowed that to inspire your life and how you show up. And, and that is beautiful. We have much more to come with Dr. Patrick as he unpacks a very thought-provoking and interesting conversation about mastering the social and economic chess game. And he'll talk about how the pandemic created a new program opportunity. But first, check out this business resource to support your professional goals. Hey there, fellow business owners and entrepreneurs. I want to talk to you about a game changer for small businesses like ours. We've been using ADP for our payroll needs for well over five years, and I can't express enough about how much it has streamlined our business operations. One thing I absolutely love about ADP is its user-friendly interface. It's designed with simplicity in mind, making payroll processing a breeze for those of us who aren't experts. You can quickly and easily manage everything from employee hours to taxes and deductions. Now I spend more time focused on our growing business and less time dealing with payroll headaches. So if you're looking for a payroll solution that will save you time and provide excellent support, I highly recommend ADP. And the best part is I've lined things up for you to check it out when you visit www.csa-adp.com. You'll be connected with our ADP team who'll share the benefits of their amazing service. So visit www.csa-adp.com and streamline your payroll operations too. Now back to our conversation with Dr. Patrick Graham. So how important are mentors or sponsors um, to professional success in your opinion? And did you forge any relationships like that? Yeah, I had plenty of them. One of my um, mentors, uh, one of you all probably familiar, Carol Hardison, when she mm -hmm. uh, first came to um, uh, Charlotte, she, um, you know, when she hired me on to direct about 90% of our operation, um, I really looked at some of the ways that she moved in terms of advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, and also found my own voice. And we ended up uh, really exchanging a lot of, of ideas. 
She taught me a lot about the philanthropic world here and its setting. Um, I taught her or, or maybe spoke to her more about the notion of paternalism mm -hmm. as somebody who was a, also a professor of African-American studies mm -hmm. um, and the importance of, of diversity. We understood together what diversity and equity uh, meant and how important it was to the work that we were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. So with her, I think it was those exchanges. Um, I remember as a young man too, there's another gentleman by Hubert Biff Moore that ran the MLK Center where I was that I ended up directing later on in life. Mm -hmm. um, and how there were some things that I learned there, how to be resilient for one, because that community was constantly under pressure. Mm -hmm. um, two, how to use your intellect um, at times, uh, along with your heart mm -hmm. to make things happen. Um, so he was one that I think taught me how to play what I call social and public chess. Mm. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that, social and public chess. Well, a lot of times, um, the beauty of, of sometimes being marginalized, um, mm -hmm. they don't always see you coming. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, what you do is you begin to learn a lot more about people by listening. You know, because one of the things about leadership, we've talked about a lot about shared vision and other things, but also it's just being able to listen and you start hearing um, different sides of issues and you begin to start to formulate your ways to navigate through those, mm -hmm. not necessarily to get past them, but to actually confront them in ways that allows you to talk different languages, to mm -hmm. be fluid enough to do that mm -hmm. um and so i've always felt like it was no problem for me to step into a red or a blue room a purple room um a white black latinx or asian or any other room and felt comfortable i could speak in front of all women all men mixed group it didn't matter to me because at that point i began to at least empathize with where they were coming from mm -hmm. um even if I didn't agree with them, mm -hmm. um, even if what they had, I felt was sort of the, the anti-Patrick, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's important to understand. Uh, when I told some people that I had to even empathize with racists, I said, what kind of comment is that? I said, mm -hmm. empathy is, remember, is about understanding how people get there. Mm -hmm doesn't mean agreement. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean support. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that there's an understanding so that even as I dialogue with them, I knew where we could embrace and have conversation. I also knew that if I was beating my head up against a wall, and that's it. Mm -hmm. It's the end. Mm -hmm. But it didn't cause me to actually um, sacrifice any of my dignity, any of my respect. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of me understanding how people get where they are, mm -hmm. because I do believe heavily in social construction as much as I believe in spirituality. Mm -hmm. I believe they both happen at the same time. That's beautiful. I love that. I love it. I love it. I'm going to be playing this back. I want you to know, because you are dropping so many great nuggets that I am going to feast on. But I'm keep going. But I love that concept. I love the comment when you said they can see us coming. And because of that, 
we have to make sure we equip ourselves to be able to approach those situations with confidence, grace, empathy, and understanding. And I think um, the examples that you have given about how to navigate each of those different types of environments is something that a lot of people struggle with. They, they do. Uh, they struggle with environments where it's different than what their experience has been. Because just because I'm black doesn't mean I want to be around a whole bunch of black people. Because my experience could have been that I grew up in a predominantly white area. And so I have notions about uh, being around all blacks and vice versa, right? So um, being able to walk with grace and confidence in each of those situations is something that is going to allow you to be effective wherever you go. And when you're working in the service industry, like you, when you're serving in community, you have to be able to do that um, because the community is represented by so many types of people that um, you need to rally and get support from. So I appreciate the chess. I love that. So Go ahead. This is what I want to think about it too, because I do remember two gentlemen, God, Dr. Melvin Penn, mm-hmm. brother named Douglas Spears, two fraternity brothers of mine who were older. And at the time, um, as part of my mentoring, I remember them both saying something I found very profound, mm-hmm. yet very simplistic. And that was homework is for home. Mm-hmm. And so what they were basically saying is, is that before you go into the trenches, mm-hmm. right? do your homework, Mm -hmm. but don't try to do it there. It's too Mm -hmm. late. It's too late. And I found that that actually also is something that, that um, I've carried with me for a long time. Yeah. You show up prepared. I love that. Let's talk about 2020, right? It was an unprecedented timeframe for us all. What impressed you about industry, about your team, about people, about yourself? I want to talk about what you were impressed with. In 2020, I was senior policy advisor for wealth building in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we had workforce components. Um, we had uh, some social venture components and obviously a lot of poverty alleviation strategies, mm-hmm. really around stability. Because at that point, so many people were suffering that you really were trying to keep them stable mm-hmm. at this point. And what I liked most is that I had so many of my colleagues willing to try different things and step up because they had embraced the notion that the pandemic could also provide the opportunity of a reset. Mm. Um, We could change different systems. As a matter of fact, while I was there within six months, um, led the design of a regional eviction prevention model, their first of its kind, in that area, they never had one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city didn't have an eviction program. They had a diversion program, but not a prevention program. We were able to start that in the pandemic. Um, and so when I look at that, what it told me is that individuals understood that while this moment was difficult mm-hmm. and one that was mentally and spiritually draining at mm-hmm. times, mm-hmm. it also was an opportunity to just reset when we look at the equity movements and other things that occurred during that time, George Floyd, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, everyone who was conscious enough to realize it 
looked at this as an opportunity also to make some change. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that we seize that that way, many of us, mm -hmm. um, and stepped up in different ways. Um, it was good to be who we were because now our talent um, was more recognized mm -hmm. because you need to talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So when you are assessing it, a choosing of your battles, right? Because they're all flaring. What are the key things that says, this is where I need to focus or this is where I need to be hands-on and it needs to have my attention? So what are the key things you assess when you're choosing your battles amongst everything that's going on and presenting itself as an opportunity uh, for you to get involved? Uh, one is, do I have any power to make a difference and how long will that take? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll make an assessment. Mm -hmm. And then is it connected to other issues that I may discover low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. on the way? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one. I'm definitely going to look at that because I feel that whatever we can change and it's in our power, we can do it. You know, when I talked about that eviction prevention model, I also was able to write the policy on it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once you gave me the pen and gave me that type of power, mm -hmm. I could expand it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example. Mm -hmm. I looked at uh, unemployment rates with African-Americans and how long it would take them to get jobs. Because at the time, when they lost employment pre-pandemic, it took up to 26 weeks for them to find new employment. Mm -hmm. That was more than any other group. Mm -hmm. um, save Native Americans, but they were a much smaller population. Mm -hmm. So when I looked at that, I said, I can base some of the policy on African Americans as an example, because it will open the door for anyone. Right. <laughs> right? If I can get them. The other is I looked at things like, well, who's excluded, but we need to include. So part of the CARES Act didn't allow people who didn't have a loss of income or some increased expenses or some health crisis, right? Mm -hmm. To actually get uh, eviction provision assistance, for example. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at communities that were suffering like those who had issues of domestic violence or other forced moves, I said, well, we had to look at them actually as, through the lens of a health crisis, mm -hmm. right? And had to look at that as a health crisis. So I petitioned our local regional HUD to approve it mm -hmm. because I was able to make a connection to actual health. Mm -hmm. It ends up opening the door for others. It's, so whatever you have in your power, mm -hmm. you start to look and you make an assessment of where you can make some changes. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is then making an assessment too of who else do you need on board? Who else's power do you need to move some things? Mm -hmm. And so when I did some of those models, I looked at foundations. I look at other public and social sector and the private sector, and instead of informing them what I was going to do, I actually came and asked them to help build it. Mm. And they were more than willing. And when people help build things, mm -hmm. they actually become dedicated to it. Because mm -hmm. now they're on the line with you. They mm -hmm. want to see it through just like mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Those two characteristics um, help with the evaluation. So when... <laughs> You, you recently made a shift, right, professionally. And so I'd like to just understand what factors did you consider 
when you decided to make the professional shift that you recently made? Um, what was key for you? All right, so I'll be just really transparent on this. I had three offers at this time. It was um, sort of like, you know, when it's a desert, it's a desert. When it rains, it pours, right? <laughs> and um, I would say that the two others would probably been very career trajectory changing jobs. Mm -hmm. The one I took was after consultation with my family and children. Mm -hmm. And so family won in this case mm -hmm. over career in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so um, what drove me here too, is that obviously looking at the issue of affordable housing, that you had a city that was willing to create an entity, mm -hmm. fund, it with, fund it with some tax dollars to start because they also realized this issue was now at their door mm -hmm. and they wanted to be more proactive about it. Mm -hmm. And to me, it also allows me then to create something from the ground up where we can create not just something that we do locally, but a national model for other municipalities to follow. Mm -hmm. And so that also the challenge of that drew me along with family. That's awesome. You know, a lot of times you hear scenarios where family and work-life balance isn't a huge factor um, when you look at the leaders, um, the demands that come from leading entities uh, can be pressure packed. And so it's very rewarding to hear you say that that was a leading factor in the choice that you made um, and that you valued it enough to make a choice in, in agreement with what was best for your family um, instead of putting more pressure on the family in a way that you were already hearing that they wanted, you know, some attention or some, some, some valued <laughs> um, exposure in what was happening with you. So I, I honor you for that um, because a lot of times it's dismissed and undervalued. Um, and so to hear you esteem it is very impressive. This has been an incredible interview with Dr. Patrick Graham, full of wisdom and insight, but it doesn't have to stop here. Here's a great resource for more business tools just for you. Success is personal, and so is our commitment to you. At the Career Success Academy, our tailored coaching is designed to address your unique goals and challenges. Unlock your full potential with personalized coaching that propels you towards your aspirations. Your success story begins with guidance, guidance that is crafted just for you. Ready for your personalized approach to success? I invite you to explore more at www.careersuccessacademy.live. Embark on your journey of growth with us. Now some final thoughts from our founder, Denise. I wanna thank you for all of the work that you're doing to make an impact, leave a legacy, drive change on all the fronts that you've touched on throughout your life. And I think the beautiful thing is, I can tell you're not anywhere turning down. You are continuing to keep that nozzle going. And even though it may not be coming out at the rate it used to, your intensity is there. And you are learning to use the influence in a more impactful way 
Um, and I think it's beautiful. And so I just want to thank you. And I want to close out by just simply saying success looks so good on you. And I appreciate everything that you're doing for our community. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. Appreciate the forum. And I hope that it leads to further dialogue for some people out there who um, are either leading, considering leading, or scared of leading. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I know that you'll agree with me that Dr. Patrick Graham is a trailblazer. We as a community, a community of people everywhere, owe honor and respect to people who are on the front lines making a difference for us every single day. And Dr. Patrick Graham does exactly that. I am so grateful that he took the time to share with us from the wealth of his experience and to give us the nuggets that has helped to make a difference in his both professional and personal development. You know, Dr. Graham, there was one key nugget that you shared that impacted me. You said, use your intellect and use your heart. That means take our smarts as well as our empathy and our compassion and make a difference. So thank you. Thank you for that one nugget and the many others that you shared in this podcast episode. And I pray nothing but continued blessings upon you and all the work that you're doing. Congratulations. You just added another episode of the Career Success Academy podcast to your toolkit. Can you feel it? Your business brain capacity has grown today. And guess what? We've got even more career growing goodies for you to explore at www.careersuccessacademy.live. And don't be shy, hit that like and subscribe button on all of our platforms and drop us a comment to let us know how our podcast is helping you level up your career game. We can't wait to have you next week with more power leader strategies to help you transform your career.